again a uh, an old hymn that uh, is right there in Teresa's wheelhouse, right? That sometimes do you ever get the feeling that Saturday night's leaking into Sunday morning? You know, the Saturday night. You know, it's like that's what <laughs> he's Lord of Saturday night too. Yes, absolutely. That's fine. Yeah, it's good. It's good. Today is uh, Pentecost Sunday. I looked it up. You could look it up too, but I'll warn you, if you Google Pentecost date, it'll be mostly websites about how to meet and date hot Pentecostals in your area. So I don't know. Search something else besides date Pentecost. <laughs> so in the, in the uh, 26 year history of our church, we, we haven't we haven't worked Pentecost into the church calendar. Um, the, you know, the way we have with Good Friday, you know, Palm Sunday, Good Friday, the Resurrection Sunday, you know, the Advent season. And we, we just haven't done that with, with Pentecost. And maybe we should have. And maybe we, sh- maybe we still should. But, you know, Pentecost, after all, the Feast of Weeks in the Old Testament, usually it's called, uh, was one of the three annual feasts that required the presence of Israelite males in Jerusalem along with Passover and uh, Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. The, you know, so it's one of, the th- one of the big three in the Old Testament. Uh, the name Pentecost means 50th or 50, uh, and it's, it's so called because it was to be celebrated seven full weeks, seven complete weeks after Passover, seven times seven, you know, seven times seven days, 49. So the next day when that period is complete would be the 50th, 50th day. Leviticus 23, 11, 15, 16, all of those verses say that the offerings associated with the Feast of Weeks, you know, or, pa- or Pentecost, um, should be offered on the seventh, after, one day after the seventh Sabbath after Passover. And for centuries and centuries of Jewish history, the meaning of the word Sabbath in that context has been a matter of dispute. And some have taken Sabbath. Some have taken that word in those in those verses uh, to mean that it, it just means seven. It just means seven after the after the seven or, or or a week. In other words, for you Daniel scholars out there, I know some of the young people studying studying Daniel. They they take the word Sabbath in those contexts the way you would take the same word Daniel seven nine twenty four seventy weeks seventy Sabbaths. Seventy-sevens have been decreed for your people in your holy city. You know, a lot of people, a lot of Christians study that. It's a really important verse to study. Seventy-sevens. They don't think of it as, as uh, Saturdays, you know, the Sabbath days, but seventy-sevens. The word means the same. It can mean the same thing. But that's one strain of Jewish opinion that said that Pentecost should be observed on the 50th day after Passover, and therefore it could really fall on any day. It's not a certain day of the week that it would fall on. In the, in the, you know, like it was one strain of Jewish teaching about when it should be cele- when it should be observed, when it should be celebrated, because Leviticus says it should be offered on the, the day after the seventh sa- Sabbath, or seven after Passover. There's another strain of Jewish opinion on the matter all through, you know, through Jewish history, pre-Christian, that really it's a more intuitive one, at least to us, at least to us, 
and that is to take the word Sabbath in its kind of normal sense as being the Sabbath. The Sabbath. In other words, you know, our Saturday. And that Pentecost, they thought, Pentecost should be observed on the day after the seventh Sabbath, our Saturday, after Passover. And if they, under that reckoning, you know, they, the way they had it figured, Pentecost would always fall on a Sunday. It always, you know, if, they, if that's what it meant, if Sabbath is to mean the Sabbath in the Old Testament passages, it's always going to be on the first day of the week. And, which is interesting to us Christians, isn't it? You know, we kind of perk up, you know, what's the first day of the week in, you know, Jewish, you know, what's the importance of the first day of the week? Not a whole lot. They were all about the Sabbath. But Pentecost was to be the day after, right? Seven Sabbaths and then the day after. At least the way this one group had it figured. By the way, in, in, in the time of Jesus included the Sadducees. We're not used to agreeing with the Sadducees on much, right? Particularly on the topic of resurrection since they didn't believe in that at all. But we're a little more, we're a little more drawn to when they thought Pentecost should be observed because they said, no, it's going to be on the first day of the week after, you know, the seventh Sabbath after Passover. And so the question is, and this is a question that's not answered. It's not answered. They just disputed about when it should be. Is it, is it just to be the 50th day after Passover, whenever that happened to be, or is it on the first day of the week after the seventh Sabbath? Because why would it be that way? Why should it be if those, if that one whole strain of Jewish teaching were right, including the Sadducees on this matter. Why would God command the observance of Pentecost so that it always came on the first day of the week, on a Sunday, in our terminology? Well, you know, this is where if a Christian could be in on those disputes, you'd kind of want to raise your hand and say, I, I might have something. <laughs> it might have something. It might have something to do with the resurrection with the resurrection of Jesus, of the Messiah. And the later, if we were to think of it and the, in that same way, in the later pouring out of God's Spirit, as described in Acts chapter 2. Similar, similar argument in Jewish history. Pentecost is not in the, in, or feast, the Feast of Weeks in the Old Testament is not specifically linked to any historical event in Israel's history. The other, the big three, you know, the big three, Passover, Booths, Feast of Weeks. Well, Passover, is that linked to a, an event in Israel's history? Oh, is it ever, <laughs> right? It's the big one, you know, this deliverance from Egypt, this deliverance from slavery. Of course, Passover and deliverance from the death of the firstborn, you know, but really in the bigger picture, the whole thing, the whole deliverance of the people from Egyptian slavery, Passover, Feast of Booths, of course, of course they have to live in, you know, they have to live in tents. Remember we had Larry Stamm up here, he had his tent up here and showed how they, you know, commemorating their wilderness wanderings and how they, reminding themselves that they were, they had to live in the, you know, tents and of the, uh, you know, the in the wilderness for those forty years. But what's the feast of, you know, what's the connection to anything with the feast? Why should it be one of the big three? 
It is. I mean, you read. You can read Moses. I mean, it, it is one of the three that required the presence of males in, 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 Israel, in Jerusalem. Well, Christians might have an idea on that too. Some, some said in the history of Israel, they kind of connected it with the end of the harvest. That doesn't quite count as a historical, you know, some great historical event. But it kind of made sense with what they're supposed to do, you know, present the wave, you know, the sheaves offerings and the loaves they present. You know, so it's like the end of the harvest period. That doesn't quite meet the, it's not quite the same as the Passover and the, and the wilderness wanderings, but they just connected it with the, you know, with the agrarian year, the harvest. Well, we might say, well, there was a great harvest of souls. Acts chapter 2, at a certain Pentecost, maybe that, you know, once again, we want to raise up our hands and say, maybe I have an idea why, why it would be this important. But there was, another, there was another kind of strain of Jewish teaching that connected it not with, you know, not with just the, uh, the um, uh, harvest, but they argued... And I won't go into this stuff. It'd be way in the weeds. But they argued from certain dating clues in Exodus, you know, like, and it's just kind of obscure and it's kind of tenuous. But they argued from certain dating clues in Exodus what might have happened 50 days after the Passover, you know, in Israel's history, the giving of the law. They argued that Moses, this is a big thing, this would be worth a top three, right? It was a day. Unfortunately, Old Testament doesn't say so just explicitly like it does with Passover and booze. But they, they argued that, no, we can see it here. You know, we, we you know, look at all these passages and, you know, and say it could have happened, could have happened. Fifty days later, that's when Moses came down the mountain with the tablets. The giving of the law. That's when it happened. That would be worthy, wouldn't it? That's a huge event, you know, in, in Israel's history, the giving of the law. And once again, this would really perk up the Christians, wouldn't it? If, the, if, if some Christians could, could go back in time and be a part of those arguments and say, I think I know why. I think that might be true. And at Pentecost, the Acts 2 Pentecost, there's God gives the Spirit as the means by which we can fulfill the law. The law came down from the mountain, but not the ability to obey it, right? This major Pauline argument, you know, that this is, yes, the law is the law, and the law is the righteousness of God, but, you, you know, saying it doesn't make it so. Paul even says, I wouldn't have known about some of my sins if not for the law. And he even says, the law provoked my wrongdoing sometimes because of my nature. But in the giving of the Spirit, the pouring out of God's Spirit, oh, how appropriate was Pentecost for that. Because if on the first, you know, the original event, and this is, you know, it's not a certain thing. It's not really explicitly taught. But this is the way some of it had it figured. We... On the Feast of Weeks marks the time when Israel was given the law, the holy law. Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, about 1,400 years later, God gave the means by which 
we can fulfill the law. The Holy Spirit. Although the law written on our hearts, not on tablets of stone. Think, wow. Yeah, so we would, we would almost be, yeah, I'll bet that's it. <laughs> that's it. It was on Pentecost that we, you know, the first day of the week, the first Sunday after the death and resurrection of our Passover lamb who took away the sins of the world. When that, that Acts 2 event, they go to Jerusalem and wait, and the, the Spirit is poured out on the believers. It really was an earth-shattering event. It was, and I use the phrase in the, in the title, it really was something new under the sun. Please don't get upset with me for disputing Solomon, saying there's no, nothing new under the sun. <laughs> but it's new. You know, God says, I make all things new. We're not going to, on the basis of Solomon, say, no, 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 nothing's new. <laughs> it really was something the world had never seen. Something new happened. I mean, after all, about 3,000 Jewish people that day became Christians, turning away from centuries of tradition, you know, turning away from into an entirely new kind of living before God. And the, the something new that happened then, the Holy Spirit is poured out on believers in Jesus Christ generally. I mean, on all of them. Not a few, not one, not for a specific purpose. On all of them. Peter said it was the beginning of the fulfillment of the prophecy of Joel chapter 2. Uh, Joel chapter 2 says the Spirit will be, there's coming a time in the future, the Spirit will be poured out on your sons and your daughters. No difference regard to sex, right? No, no, men and women, your sons and your daughters. It's going to be poured out without, without regard to age. Young and old, Joel said. Young and old. Without regard to social station. Joel says, even the servants, the servants, they're male and female servants. Maybe you really could even argue, especially the poor, especially the servants, especially the lowly. Rich and poor, highly educated, not so educated, the bosses, the servants, the men, the women, the young, the old. That's different. That's new. And if there, you know, if, if there ever was anything new under the sun, that, that, that filled the bill. Nothing like it had ever happened in human history. And it isn't that, this is, it isn't that the Holy Spirit was born or came into being or anything like that on Pentecost. He's the third person of the Trinity. And it's a, and the Holy Spirit is a he, by the way, not an it. It's he in the New Testament. Third person of the Trinity, a person. And they're of the, of the Godhead. So it's, it's self-existent, uncreated. The Holy Spirit himself has never been new. Has never been new. In, in the Old Testament, we see the the Holy Spirit not only existing, we see, you know, filling certain people for certain tasks. You know, the, 
people are filled with the Holy Spirit so they can do something. So he's around. You know, he shows up Genesis 1. Genesis chapter 1, 2. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So it wasn't the Holy Spirit's new uh, on Pentecost. But he never has been new. But what was new is this pouring out of his Spirit on all of God's people so that all of God's people become a sharer in the Holy Spirit in a way that was not so before and had never been so before. Every believer, every member of God's household of faith became a sharer in God's Holy Spirit, the recipient of His gracious works. Now, the question, how? How did they become a sharer in the Holy Spirit in a way that was, that was different? Uh, what, in what ways? Uh, what does the Holy Spirit do now that he wasn't doing before that in and for and even to every believer in Jesus Christ, every member of God's household? All of that, you don't get that in Acts chapter 2. You don't get that in Acts chapter 2. So, some who think, I'll return to this later, but some people think that everything that can be understood about this outpouring of the Holy Spirit, you can learn from Acts in those early chapters. So the fruit of it is speaking in tongues. You know, whatever that is in Acts chapter 2, that's it. That's it. But you really don't get the full meaning of what this means from Acts chapter 2. What do you, where do you get it? You get it from what Jesus said would happen when he returned to the Father and sent the Spirit. You get it from that, and you get it from the, the, the teaching of the, of the epistles of what it meant that the Spirit was poured out on all of God's people. And in the time remaining, you know, just 20 minutes here, I want to kind of return to some of that basic New Testament teaching on the works of the Holy Spirit in the lives, in the lives of every Christian. I'll just take a moment to say and kind of admit, maybe even confess, you know, one of the occupational hazards of, of preaching and, uh, is that, uh, well, there's a, there's a temptation to, to, to teach and preach what is interesting and maybe kind of new to you, I'm thinking about me, who have been a believer for 43 years and studying the Bible, and you know, things that are, that are kind of uh, interesting to me, and forgetting that Jesus told Peter, feed my lambs, feed my lambs, tend my sheep. So this is, this is what I want to return to today is basic. Basic, basic, basic. Uh, and I want to, and this is not everything, 20 minutes, not everything the Holy Spirit does at all. But really the backbone of what he does and what he is in every believer's life, in you, or if you're a believer, what he is in your life, what he's done for you, that's really because of what happened at Pentecost, this pouring out of God's Spirit on all the believers who were gathered there. First, and by the way, before I get to it, I want you to notice something about all of them together. You, you know, you're gonna, we're going to look at passages, look at them closely, but note well that everything I talk about today is an accomplished fact in the life of every believer. 
It's already true whether you knew it to be true or not of you if you were in Christ. We are not, I'm not going to talk about anything that we're commanded to pursue or that we should aspire to or that we should pray for or we should acquire in, in, in any way. I'm, I'm talking about just simple statements of fact and the only thing that you can do with them is believe them receive them you know as accept them as true I should say accept them as true and even in believing in them your belief doesn't make it true I am not going to say believe in it so that it will become true it's already true if you're in Christ these things these basic works of the Holy Spirit and the lives of people first one I want to kind of race through them the first one is that of regeneration Regeneration is a biblical word used in Titus 3.5. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. It basically means born again. Generation, be born. You're part of a generation. Born ones, re is again. So it basically means born again. And regeneration is the impartation of spiritual life so that you, if you believe in Christ, you are not dead to God, you are alive to God. You have a life that's been given you. You're spiritually alive to God in a way that those who do not believe are not alive to God. It's, this is the basic subject, although the word regeneration doesn't, is not in the context of John chapter 3, but this is really what John and Nicodemus are talking about in John chapter 3, when Nicodemus comes to, to Jesus. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, he says to Nicodemus, unless one is born again, that's regeneration. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus, of course, doesn't get it at all. He doesn't get it at all. He says, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? So Jesus clarifies. He says, and he basically says to Nicodemus, no, I'm not talking about being born a second time physically. I'm talking about the impartation of spiritual life, being born spiritually after you've been born physically. <laughs> two different kinds of birth, not two different of the same kind. Jesus answered, this is John 3, 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water, physical birth. What happens before the birth of the baby? The water breaks. <laughs> Unless born as water. I don't think it, it's not talking about baptism. We're not talking about being baptized in water. We're talking about unless one is born. You could, you could get the right idea if you, say, if you see Jesus saying, unless one is born physically and of the Spirit, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he can't, in other words, something the Holy Spirit does. He cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. Really, there's proof we're not talking about water baptism. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Don't marvel, Nicodemus, that I said to you, you must be born again. And physical birth is a, it's really a perfect picture of spiritual birth because Physical birth, we don't do that for ourselves, do we? You didn't do anything to get born. You didn't born yourself, right? 
And we talk about, you know, it, it's passive in voice, right? It's, we, we talk about it in that way. Our mothers bore us. Uh, they brought us into the world. You know, they, we talk about it that way. It was something that was done for us. They gave birth to us. And it's the same with spiritual birth. Jesus goes on to explain to Nicodemus that the, the birth mother of that spiritual birth is the Holy Spirit. That's who gives us spiritual life. The wind blows where it wishes, it's John 3, 8. You hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. So we can't see the wind itself. You can't see the wind. You see the effects of the wind. You see the trees move. You hear it. You hear something. You see something. But you don't see the wind itself. You see the effects. And we don't see the Holy Spirit himself, but we see the effects of the Holy Spirit in those who have been made alive toward God. You may have heard somebody talk about a born-again Christian, right? You've heard that as if, but they, sometimes they'll speak of it as if they're talking about a particular kind of Christian. I'm a Christian, yeah, but are you a born-again Christian? Or something like that. Biblically speaking, well, what do they mean by that when they say, yeah, but are you a born-again Christian? Maybe they mean, well, yeah, but are you a, you know, are you a wild-eyed Christian? <laughs> or are you a, a witnessing, evangelistic kind of Christian who's always telling everybody, you know, they may mean something like that when they say, are you a born-again Christian? Or talking about born-again Christians, not, not talking to anybody, but just describing born-again. Yeah, he's a born-again Christian. He's not a regular. He's a born-again Biblically speaking, however, that's the only kind there are. That's the only kind there are. There's no such thing as a Christian who has not been born again, regenerated. Uh, there, there's no such thing as a Christian. You know, you see the fruits of it. You, there's no such thing as a Christian who is not alive toward God, you know, to borrow terminology from the letters, from the epistles. No such thing. There's no such thing as a, as a Christian who's unaware of God, insensible to God, uh, there, who's no capacity for knowing God or communicating with God, who's, whose life has no spiritual aspect, whose life is entirely bound up in fleshly, physical existence. What do you... If you came here today of your own free will... That might not be the case with some of the younger ones. But if you came here your own free will, or you would have, even if you, even if you didn't have to, why did you do that? And why do you pray to God if you do? Uh, why, do you why do you really, you really want to know God and know Him better? Not just about God, but you want to know God Himself. Why is that? Why do you care whether God is pleased with you or not at the moment or with your manner of life? If you're like that, why are you like that? Here's why. You have been given life, spiritual life by the Spirit of God. You have been born again in the terminology of John chapter 3. You have been regenerated and that's the Holy Spirit 
has done that in you and for you, and he does that for in the life of every single believer since Pentecost. It's a big deal. Regeneration. I'm going to race through these. But second, all believers are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. In other words, we are not, you know, some Christian hymns notwithstanding, we are not in the position of having to go seek out and ask God to send the Holy Spirit, to give us the Holy Spirit. There's Christian hymns that say so, imply so maybe, but that is not our position. According to the scripture, he's already there. He's our constant companion. He's an ever-present roommate in this uh, dwelling of flesh. This is what Jesus promised. I said a lot of this comes from what Jesus taught before it happened and from the epistles after it happened. John 14, I will ask the Father. He will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. When will he be in you? Pentecost. He said, go to Jerusalem and wait for what was promised. We see it. We see it in the Gospels. We see it in Acts chapter 1. While staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. And when we come to 1 Corinthians, we see Paul admonishing all the believers at Corinth to abstain from sexual immorality. Why? Because Here's his argument. Because your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you. In you. Flee from sexual immorality, he writes. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God you're not your own if you are in Christ the Holy Spirit is always there in you not only with you in you if we take the argument of 1 Corinthians, you know, there are places that the flesh wants to take you that the Holy Spirit shouldn't be taken. And positively, when you need the Spirit's empowering, He's there. You don't have to, Lord, send the Holy Spirit so I need His power to do this to do that to overcome this to over to deal with it to you know to get through this he's there when you need his wit you really need his witness in your in yourself crying out abba father he's there when you need that peace that passes understanding that when you need him the promise of scripture is that he's always there He's forever there. He doesn't come and go. He doesn't have to be sought. He doesn't have to be asked for. He just has to be listened to. He just has to be submitted to, just relied upon, 
just trusted in. And that's true. If you're in Christ at all, that's true of you. It's to be believed, not sought after, not aspired to, not if I get to a certain level of maturity, that'll be, that'll be the case with me. It's all of them. You know, what, what Paul says to Corinthians is very handy in terms of assurance, isn't it? Because you think, oh my goodness, if it's true of those Christians, if it's true of the people in that church, it's got to be true of me and my church. Because what a, what a terrible, you know, what a, boy, what a mess that church was. You know, in terms of what's going on, there are people suing each other, be drunkenness at church functions, and, you know, all kinds of terrible, proud, seemingly proud of their, to, you know, tolerating terrible immorality, all kinds of things. He says, even to those Christians, if, they're, if you're a real Christian, he's in you. Why would you be involved in sexual immorality with the Holy Spirit made your body a temple, his own temple? Third, I believe he's regenerated by the Holy Spirit and dwelt by the Holy Spirit. They've been baptized by the Holy Spirit, in the Holy Spirit. For Corinthians, once again, for just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one Spirit. Baptism literally means to place into. In a way, it's almost a shame that we've we've made that word baptizo and given it kind of a religious, you know, just transliterated as baptize, because it means to place into. It means to uh, envelop in. It means to place under the influence of. It is the word in secular usage. It's, it is the word that they use to describe what you did with a piece of cloth that you wanted to dye another cl- color. You would baptize it in the dye. <laughs> you would, and it, really, this is this is a, a major. The meaning of the word is a major argument for immersion. You know, when you baptize people, you know, we immerse them. Don't pour on them. Don't sprinkle. We immerse. Part of the reason is because that word baptizo. In in First Corinthians 12, here we're not talking about baptism in water but we're talking about an act of the Holy Spirit by which he makes us part of the church, the bride of Christ, the body of Christ. We are a part of something bigger than us. We're a part of something else. We've been made a part of, uh, we're a spiritual household. Bigger than us, even bigger than the sum of its parts. Uh, ironically and maybe even perversely there are some Christians who take this I've already been made a part of the body of Christ they they take that as a reason why they don't need to be a part of a particular church you know the only church that counts I'm already a part of that's been done for me I'm in the body of Christ why do I have to do there you know why do I have to go there why do I have to be a part of that life of a of a uh, local church of of a particular church well that does make Sundays a lot less trouble, and that you know it's probably easier on the pocketbook too. You know there are some advantages, but the fact that the Holy Spirit has made you a part of the Bride of Christ, the Body of Christ, is the reason why you must <laughs> be a you know part of a particular church. We've been made members of one another. That's why it's important for us to worship together, to serve the Lord together, to help each other, 
to help us even admonish each other, help each other live this life we've been called to. And there's another group of Christians on this baptism of the Holy Spirit that would argue because of what happened at Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, they hold that the baptism of the Holy Spirit must always be accompanied by speaking of tongues. And if you haven't spoken in tongues, it means you haven't been baptized in the Spirit. Well, 1 Corinthians again tells us, for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, right? So if you're in Christ at all, you have been baptized in the Holy Spirit, made a part of the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12.30, a few verses later, same chapter. Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? And the answer expected to each of those rhetorical questions is no. In one spirit, we were all, do the math. In one spirit, we were all baptized in one body. Do all speak in tongues? No. So that is not true. That is not true. That speaking in tongues or any particular gift is the necessary evidence of having been made a part of the body of Christ by the Holy Spirit. Those hands are almost straight up. So let me go to the fourth one. Regeneration indwelling, baptism. These are things the Holy Spirit's done for you if you're in Christ. And the last one I want to talk about is sealing. You've been sealed by the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption. Central New Testament passage, Ephesians 1, 13, 14. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. I th- the, the, uh, the background for it, the image of it, is of a letter, I would, th- you know, a letter or something else, usually a letter that would be, that would be folded and wax poured on it, and the seal of the sender would be, pre- in a ring usually, would be pressed into it. This came from the king, this came from so-and-so, and when it gets to the recipient, that needs to be in place. The letter hasn't been tampered with. It reaches it. It's the guarantee that it reaches the destination intact. Not been erased. Any no, you know, it's intact. We do something like that still. It seems to me like with shipping. You know, you, the back of the truck. They might put a padlock on it, but the main thing is because a padlock might have a lock or a combination. You don't know. So they put a little aluminum, usually a kind of aluminum uh, seal on it. It might have a number or something. It's something you can check out. You can backtrack. And that and that truckload of, of cargo needs to get where it's going with that seal intact. And when it comes to the person that, or the company or whatever who's received it, they know that what's in there is exactly what was sent by the sender because it's intact. Here's the image. You're the cargo. <laughs> and you're getting the seal is the Holy Spirit of God. And it's the God's promise that you're going to get where you're going. You're going to arrive at the destination that's been promised intact. Intact. You know, they, the Holy Spirit is God's seal of ownership on you, and there's nothing a robber or a thief or a murderer or a liar from the beginning can do about it. 
Why is it important for you to know these things? Well, for assurance, for one thing. Assurance. God, the Holy Spirit, because of what happened at Pentecost, and it's happened to every believer since then, the Holy Spirit has given you spiritual life. Who's going to take away the life that God gave? Uh, he's taken up residence in you. Who's going to evict him? He, he's made you a part of Christ's body. Who's, who could do the surgery that takes you out of Christ's body? He's, you've been sealed with the Holy Spirit as a pledge of, his inher of your inheritance. Who's going to break that seal and, and steal what is God's? And here's, the, here's why it's important for you to be, like, begin this, not knowing this. Nobody's going to do those things. And nobody could. It's a ground of assurance. And you notice your ground of assurance is not based on you. I'm such a great person. I'm such a great Christian. I'm bound to make. It's because of what the Spirit has already done. And for another thing, it's important to begin to realize who and what you are in Christ, what is true about you because of what the Holy Spirit has already done in your life. And that's more than what I've talked about today. But what I've talked about today, the regeneration, the indwelling, the baptism, the sealing, that's the backbone of all of it. That's the skeleton on which all the rest of it hangs. And there's a lot more to talk about what the Spirit does in your life. But that's the foundation. That's the backbone. These are, and once again, these are regeneration, indwelling, baptism, sealing. These are not things that you're told to acquire, to work toward, to mature toward, to aspire to, to pray for. These are things that are simply should be believed because they are so. They're the beginning of reasons for you to know and really believe that you are what the New Testament says you are. And you can do what the New Testament calls you to do. And you can be, and you will become, what the New Testament says you will become. You who have believed in Christ, you've been given a spiritual life from God, you've been born of His Spirit, you've made, been made a dwelling of the Holy Spirit, a temple of the Holy Spirit, you've been made a part of Christ's body, and you have already been sealed for safe delivery to the Father's house. Father, thank you for sending the Holy Spirit and for his work in the lives of every believer, the beginnings of which we've reminded ourselves of today. May it assure every believer, encourage, embolden every believer, comfort every believer. And may the Holy Spirit convict every soul any soul outside of Christ of sin and righteousness and judgment to come that they might appeal to Christ to save them for your blessing for your glory and that our joy should be made full we pray in the name of Jesus Amen